What do you mean gross? You mean <laughs> the spoiled nature of my cat? I just or... want all the podcast listeners at home to know that my parents uh, briefly microwave the wet food Only that they feed the their refrigerator. cats. Only if it, yes, only if it's been in the refrigerator, which is most days, probably. Right. Yeah. <laughs> two yeah. out of three, mm-hmm. probably. Three, yeah. Two out of three or three out of, two out of three, I suppose. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, well. Hey, folks, I've got good news. Yeah. Ooh. We finally have some official guidance. The Commission d'Enrichissement de la Langue Française has determined that you should be saying audio à la demande from here on in rather than le podcast. Oh. <laughs> oh, goodness, no. <laughs> so should we next week do our podcast in French? Yes, that's the plan. So, yep. uh, you know, those of you who have some French already, brush up. And okay. if you don't speak French yet, uh, you've got a whole week to learn. So that should be enough time. Yeah. yeah. Hello, and welcome to Good-Looking People in Small Clever Rooms that Utilize Every Centimeter of Available Space with Mind-Boggling Efficiency. It's week nine, and that's okay. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Brianna. Hi there. And we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hello, everyone. And by our friend, Vinny. Hello! This feels like important stuff that we're reading this time around. Mm -hmm. Or a lot of it does. Yeah, and once again, it seemed like too much to, like, absorb. And, like, I should remember all of it because it might be important. We start out with uh, something that feels a little more like um, sort of a vignette uh, and maybe a little more frivolous in some ways in the, uh, the ETA weight room. It is frivolous, and yet it helps to flesh out the climate of... ETA. Yes. Yeah. You know, Lyle's talking about how much failure, what what level of failure are you willing to accept the risk of failure? And then there's the the guys that are like pushing each other to lift more and more weight and right. and then at the end, you know, they they went all in and then Pamela says like whispers pussy to the guy who's just dead from lifting weights and mm-hmm. it's like that mm-hmm. idea that nothing is ever enough around there. I get the feeling mm-hmm. though that in that moment Pemulus is making who is it? It's um Cornspan? It's, is it Elliot yeah, Cornspan? Cornspan. Yep. I think I think Pemulus is making fun of Cornspan for trying so hard. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess that could be. But why is trying so hard a bad thing? Well, and, but I, th- I think he's mind. also he's also needling Cornspan because he knows this personality type, and he knows that no matter how, if Cornspan lifted a car over his head, he it somehow wouldn't still enough. wouldn't think it was enough. And Lyle's comparing your willingness to accept the possibility of failure to having a ring of a hundred keys, right? And one key works. Uh, right. Will you be willing to try? How many keys would you be willing to try before you'd give up? And the guy says, mm-hmm. well, I would try all of them. 
says, okay, so you'd accept the 99% possibility of failure. So you're, you're willing to make mistakes. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I kind of love that image of a a key ring with a hundred keys and only one works. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But it sounds exhausting if you apply it like (laughs) to your life and how much, how much failure you're willing to absorb. Oh yeah. Uh, Ah, 99%. So 99% of the time that you try to do something, (laughs) it's not going to work. I don't know. Could you really live (laughs) like that? I like the facial isometrics that Pemulus is doing. Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of like mysterious face exercises. Right. Um, What is that about? I don't know. It doesn't seem at all related to tennis. Uh, oh, it for sure is not. Okay, so there's reference to Pemulus makes his face very long for a while, and then very short and broad, and then all sort of hollow and distended like Bacon's Pope, which would be a reference to this. Yes, I love this painting. Mm-hmm. So this yeah, is so- uh, study after Velasquez's portrait of Pope Innocent X mm-hmm. by oh. Francis Bacon. Oh. Um. Francis and and Bacon did a he did a series of pope paintings, right? I believe so. Yeah, let me see if I can find some more. Wikipedia tells me I believe he did a series that popes are often depicted as being behind a veil and often uh grimacing or screaming or seeming to be about to scream. Wow. Hmm. It's a fairly disturbing image. Well, Francis Bacon was a fairly disturbing painter, although he had uh, just based on the um, the Wikipedia article, he had very practical reasons for wanting to do these paintings. He said that he had nothing against popes, but merely sought an excuse to use these colors. And you can't give ordinary clothing that purple color without getting into a sort of false fauve manner. (laughs) So that was that was his reason for doing these paintings. Well, (laughs) They are so weird. I got to say that a lot of Francis Bacon's paintings don't really appeal to me, but I love his popes. I think they're spectacular. I underlined Lyle never whispers, but it's just about the same. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess he doesn't whisper, but he speaks at the volume of a whisper just generally. I I love that because Mm -hmm. it challenges people to really lean into understand what he is saying yeah but it also opens him up to misunderstanding uh, Mm -hmm. and that puts them in close enough proximity that he can lick their sweat right Right. (laughs) he's hungry yeah Yeah. (laughs) corn span is lifting uh i did the the metric conversion he's lifting 242 and a half pounds that's definitely more than he weighs right oh yeah by a great margin. Which seems to go somehow against Lyle's thing about right, don't right. try to... I, I would say if Cornspan were listening to Lyle, Lyle would be counseling him to not do this. Right. But it is possible you can lift more than your body weight. I oh, guess yeah. weightlifters yeah, sure. do all the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's also an offhand line about Carol Spodek. Yes. And her smaller bar goes silently up and down. Uh, and I made a note that this is an indication of female characters' role in this novel so far, that they're oddly silent. Mm. Yes, although I think it's also an acknowledgement that maybe the girls at ETA aren't 
necessarily as frequently given to such foolishness. <laughs> I thought it was just intriguing that there finally are at least one girl in the training room. Yeah. Because yeah. up until now, have we seen them together, either in classes or in training? Well, we, or haven't, in, we haven't really seen anyone in classes. See. Well, yeah. So now we move on to the section that's about the things you learn at Ennett House if you're there for long enough. Right. Mm -hmm. This is the part that felt overwhelming. Like, I should remember all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I noticed, for instance, that this is the second mention in the book of a drink called Millennial Fizzy that seems oh, to be some yeah. kind of uh, soda that people drink. Yeah, Fizzy Pop. It would have been written before millennials were called millennials, right? When we well, were but still the idea uh, Gen of the millennium, I think, would have been yeah. in vogue in the 90s. It, I mean, it reminds me, I'm sure there was some, some soft drink company came out with something that was called like Pepsi 2000 or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, surely, right? yeah. I, yeah. Surely, I mean, if they didn't come out with it, I'm sure <laughs> all of their like ad people and everything were talking about it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, remember when the number 2000 was in every brand and product name ever? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, cool and sleek and futuristic. Yeah, 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Why yeah. to Coke? Oh. We were so innocent then. <laughs> yeah. There's some mention of racist, which I guess hit, hit me because of things going on in our world right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Talking about that, that uh, people of color can also be racist uh, and, that yeah. it, and that it's really racist of white people to think that people of color can't be racist. I think perhaps this paragraph was written before there was a more nuanced understanding of white privilege. Well, right. yeah, I also think I choose to believe that the author here does have a more nuanced understanding of white privilege and white racism, but I think it's also important to recognize that these observations are being told from the perspective of a specific character at Ennett House, whose right. understanding of racism mm -hmm. is, uh, in many ways, maybe not very sophisticated. Right. Yeah. I do want to kind of pin this down. I, I want to talk through more of the stuff in this list because I do think there's a ton of observations here. But mm -hmm. I, want to, I want to talk first about the perspective that we're looking at here. My understanding as we continue to read the list is that all of this is from the perspective of Tiny Yule. Is, do people agree with that? No. No? Yeah, I'm, I'm not <laughs> too sure either about that. Why would Tiny Yule be talking about himself in the third person? Well, it's not it's not narrated in the first person, but, you know, there are moments where we're in Hal's head or we're in, you know, we're in Don Gately's head or someone. Yeah. 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 But I mean, because later I on know. it starts talking about Tiny. And right, but it's so, talking exclusively about his experience. That's my yeah, point. I, know, I think that this list also, is about. It's also shining a critical eye on Tiny Yule that doesn't get shown on other close narrators that we've followed. To me, it felt like a weird list of like uh, interviews. Like, so what have you learned about life from being at NMS? <laughs> Just kind of a collective kind of thing. Hmm. It feels like the little book at a Airbnb that you can write comments. <laughs> For me, I agree that it's one person kind of 
uh, it's almost like a journalistic take that it's one person re- uh, repeating basically what they've learned from multiple sources inside of Ennett House. Part of it is that we don't know a lot about Tiny, I guess, mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. We've, we've met him briefly. But to me, this list, some things seem so little and trite, and some things seem kind of a, a negative way of looking at the world and about people. And then there are others that seem so much more positive and open to goodness in people. It just seems like it's a... But that's, to me, it like, felt that's like, any, like, there are moments when I'm is, feeling very cynical yeah. and other moments where I'm very positive and open. So, you know, I always worry about Hal, uh, and I worry about his, his drug use. And there's somewhere where it talks about, it says something like that over 60% of those who are arrested for drug and alcohol related offenses report being sexually abused as kids, um, and I was just curious where that, like, is that valid? That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really high percentage. And I poked around online for a little bit, and and it seems like uh, that that number is probably pretty realistic and would be really? substantiated in other studies than that, in fact, uh, 60% might be understating. Mm. And they would, of course, they would say, you know, it's not necessarily causal. Like it might not be, it's hard to say which came first even in some cases because some of the abuse happens after someone is addicted and desperate for money for drugs and they may put themselves in positions that are no longer safe. And, but still that's, that's troubling. Mm Mm-hmm. And then also a large percentage later on, it's like 50% of those with substance addiction also have some psychiatric disorder, even if it's, you know, depression or anxiety or something bigger. I also thought on page 201, who was it talking about? There was a description of your mind when you're trying to quit using a substance that seemed like Kate Gompert's explanation Mm. of what it was like to like praying to literally be able to lose your mind, to wrap Mm -hmm. it up in newspaper and Mm -hmm. leave it in an alley somewhere that you just want to not. Which is, is also interesting. We'll get into it more, but this is echoed later in the conversation with Pemulus and Hal about the, somebody who took DMZ. Right. They say that happened to him. Yeah, there's a, a number of observations in here that feel like really thematically important. Right. Uh, perversely, it is often more fun to want something than to have it. That right. feels like kind of a continuing, uh-huh. a thematically continuing thing. You could talk about this in regards to people and their drug use, uh, but also to ETA students and their pursuit of like tennis excellence or academic excellence. Some of them I read and I just thought... Oh, isn't that the truth? Um, <laughs> like the realization that that certain persons simply will not like you no matter what you do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then and then also that most non-addicted adult civilians have already absorbed and accepted this fact. There's something in an endnote about the observation that that some recovery people have that pretty much anything can become an addictive yes. habit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And that comes up 
that comes up several times. Doing like random acts of kindness yeah. can become an addiction. Yeah. yeah, It doesn't even, yeah. The line that loneliness is not a function of solitude Ooh. really stuck out yeah. to me and rang true and felt like a line from a poem that I'd like to write one day. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, a lot of this felt like poetry because it's just listing yeah. so many things. It is so non-narrative. Focusing a lot more on the, the words and the tiny bite-sized vignettes that you're getting than on overarching narrative. Mm-hmm. That sometimes human beings have to just sit in one place and like hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or hey, you'll become way less concerned about what other people think about you when you realize they seldom do. <laughs> <laughs> But then, so it's all this bleak stuff, but then it also says, like, that there's such a thing as raw, unalloyed, agendaless kindness. You mm-hmm. know, to me, that seemed so, when you, when you come up against those, like, really, like, hopeful little things in the list, it kind of, it's such a surprise to come up against them. There might not be angels, but there are right. people who might as well be angels. Right. Mm. Hmm. In that little section, too, I really liked him, his uh, comment that if God exists, then that God probably doesn't care much if you believe or not. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the list of things that God would find interesting about you, that's probably not <laughs> one of them. Right. <laughs> it's probably immaterial. Yeah. Oh, one thing that stuck out to me just as, as something that feels like a really familiar memory to me. I uh, talks about sitting so close to Ennett House's old cartridge viewer that the screen fills your whole vision and the screen's static charge tickles your nose like a linty mitten. Um, <laughs> and I was just thinking about how um, static electricity seems like it used to be a much more prevalent element of our day to day life than it is now. Like every TV and computer monitor right. generated enormous amounts of static electricity. True. Yeah. Do you miss it? Um, sometimes, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It was usually more an annoyance than anything else, but the, the, yeah, like the, the description of it as sort of a linty mitten does feel Mm -hmm. kind of nostalgic to me now. Okay. On a different note, here's the other little thing that came up was the low IQ person kicks addiction easier than the high IQ person. And it's Mm. something about thinking thinking overthinking and thinking everything through and becoming addicted to thinking about the addiction and yeah i also looked that up i wondered if there was any connection i looked to see if there's anything about that and it did seem to it did seem to hold up in addiction literature hmm. Hmm. i'm hmm. maybe not totally convinced but maybe that's just because i'm cautious of any discussion of iq Right. Mm. Mm. Will you say more about that, though? Well, IQ tests in general have been used as, like, tools of racist oppression since they were invented. They're just measurements of people's learned ability to do certain things, which it's tough to, like, take a list of any list of tasks and be like, your ability to do these things makes you universally smart or not smart. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. But it might be true. Another one that sounded true and sad is that the people to be most frightened of are the people who are most frightened. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
So then we move on to the tattoos, which the lead is in is that the substance abuser will do things under the influence that they'd never do sober. Mm-hmm. And that some consequences of these things can never be erased or amended. Yeah. You can't ring a bell. Tiny is like obsessed with tattoos. He has a theory that there are a couple different types of tattoo <laughs> havers at uh, right. at Ennis House. And he's he's like pestering everyone who will talk to him about his theories. At some point in the narrative, it says, too, that people kind of put up with him because they know that he'll get over it. That'll be, you know, this is his current obsession, but it's well, like, it, and, and he then, thinks it's your he, current obsession. He, uh, he knows that people think that, and he finds that incredibly patronizing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because the person that's, that's obsessing doesn't really think that they're obsessing. They think right. that their interest is perfectly valid and typical and that they're, you know, right. that there's a big point to it. So I don't have a lot to say about the tattoos, except, I mean, I think we should talk about it some because it takes up a big chunk of the chapter. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some there are some descriptions that I, that I particularly liked. The faint remains of a black dotted line tattooed all the way around his neck at about Adam's apple height with instruction manual like directions for the removal of his head and maintenance of the disengaged head tattooed on his scalp. Yeah. I think that's an excellent idea for a tattoo. It's really creepy. (laughs) (laughs) It perversely reminds me of Jeremy Bentham. Yes. The philosopher who is... Is that is, a, is it his entire body that's taxidermied? It's his entire his entire body is taxidermied, but his head is separate from his body. Right, because oh. it's too heavy. It kept getting stolen, so they oh. took it off of the display model. Oh, yes. But they still but they still bring <laughs> the it out for college model. meetings. Uh, University College London is where he's mm. on display, uh, and the, so his head is stored separately, but it's still taken out for uh, uh, administrative Special meetings. <laughs> I fell down the rabbit hole of scalp tattoos, like what kinds of scalp tattoos do people get? Um, And a lot of them are kind of underwhelming, but I want to show you a couple pictures of this one that I thought was particularly impressive. This is uh, Lou Eric or Eric Eric or something who's a costume designer for Glee and a variety of other TV shows. Uh, she has this uh, scalp tattoo that kind of resembles hair in the front and then in the back wow. it turns into like a geometric oh, yeah. pattern. I love that. I thought that was an excellent look. So Tiny says there's three types of people that get tattoos. There's the young mm-hmm. with no sense or impulse control and then there, there are the older ones with regrets. And then there are the bikers a.k.a. scooter puppies. Oh. And I wondered if that was actually a term that's used for bikers. Yeah. And so I googled scooter puppies and this is what I found. The pictures. Those are very good. So scooter puppies. Did you find any substantiation for that slang term or is that something that seems See, to be I, made up? I can't remember. I'm going to look right now because I can't remember. I was so taken with the images that I... Um, while we're looking that up, I had a question. Mm-hmm. Um, also on page 207, two, three paragraphs down, the paragraph begins with W slash R slash T. With regard to. With regard to. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Also in the section on tattoos, there's a reference to an E.E. E. Cummings poem. The kid named Skull, who is the person who kind of sparks Tiny's obsession with tattoos, has a tattoo that includes the inscription, how do you like your blue-eyed boy now, Mr. Death? 
uh, which is from the E.E. E. Cummings poem, Buffalo Bill's Defunct. Very short <laughs> poem. Uh, it just goes, Buffalo Bill's defunct, who used to ride a water-smooth silver stallion and break one, two, three, four, five pigeons just like that. Jesus, he was a handsome man. And what I want to know is, how do you like your blue-eyed boy, Mr. Death? Hmm. Um, I was looking for interpretations of this poem or, or I mean, it's, it's viewed as one of E.E. E. Cummings's like, uh, most important works. And one interpretation I found is that it's kind of a eulogy for Buffalo Bill in some way. He views Buffalo Bill as this sort of like heroic, uh, handsome, capable man, but now he's dead and that's it. And how do you like your blue eyed boy, Mr. Death? Which uh, strikes me as being very similar to Hamlet's Alas, Poor Yorick speech. Mm. I'm not sure if that's anything, if I'm reading too much into that or and also like I have no idea how someone like Skull would come to acquaint themselves with a with an E.E. E. Cummings poem. And it does seem like a really esoteric thing for a I don't remember if he was an alcoholic or a narcotics addict or both, but it seems like a very odd thing for someone like that to choose to have tattooed on their bodies. Although, as the narration says, a lot of addicts get tattoos kind of without thinking. So it's possible he just heard the phrase somewhere and immediately decided that he wanted it as a tattoo. Hmm. We do get reference to Erdetti in the tattoo section. Yes. Yeah, yeah, on page yeah. 209. Yeah. yeah, so we, yeah, finally is he know. There, is he there now or was he there? I, I, we get reference to him also to Kate Gompert and to Bruce Green and... Yeah. Uh, are mm-hmm. they all there? And we know Don Gately's there and Tiny. We don't, are they so really I don't, all there at the same time? Or I don't know. I mean, Bruce Green, I think we can assume is there or has been there recently because his story was in the section of right. uh, like comments to Pat Montesian. Right. But yeah, I don't know whether we're to believe that Kate Gompert and Erdetti are there it's right the, now also. It's the same year that Kate Gompert was in the psych ward in the hospital, mm. which it didn't, mm. I looked back to see when that was because of my uh, confusion, you know, my and, yeah. my, and my obsession with how are the dates, how does right. this all line up? And, and that uh, story, while it was in the same year, it didn't say when in the oh. year. So it could have been that she was hospitalized earlier and she was uh, discharged to Ennett House as a, a like a follow-up. So there they all are, all these people that we were meeting in little random places right. that seem to all be connected, either currently or in recent past, maybe, because people reference them, people who are there now reference them, whether they're currently there or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm still wondering about Don Gately, because I, I looked again, his... I'm still concerned about the burglary gone bad that seems to be just the year previously. It was the previous year. Was it? What? It was the year of the... Dairy products from the American heartland. Yeah. Hmm. Which, because I'm Uh. looking ahead at the next chapter, I can see that that's the year before the... So that's got to mean that that he hasn't been caught for that then. 
right? Because there's no way that he would have committed that crime the previous year and now already be essentially released said, on his own recognizance. But he says somewhere right. when they're talking about his jail tattoos, it says something like he's paying off his mistakes and that'll take a while. So it sounds but that, like that doesn't necessarily mean that he's prepared to go turn himself in for a crime that he hasn't been arrested for. Right. Well, yeah. also, it just seems so unlikely to that me the, that the guy died. That's the other question. He might not know. Because he knows that he burgled the place, but I don't know if he knows. Yeah. That he accidentally like, murdered someone. I feel like it's so hard to believe that he hasn't been nabbed for that crime, judging by judging except by that, the, the, except the that, comments about the police, you know, knowing except that isn't, wasn't the guy who died like a financier for Quebecois organized crime. So like maybe law enforcement in the US isn't looking that hard for the killer. Maybe he did know that the guy died and he and he but Huh. Oh, I don't think that. There's no and way that's it. the no, case. No, but I mean, went to Ennett House. Like, oh, maybe he turned it's himself possible, over or maybe to, he was picked up the... on like a narcotics charge or something, or you know. But I think the fact that he's paying off his mistakes, if it's not through the legal system, then perhaps it's just his own sense that, right? You know, I mean, maybe he it's... owes something to the universe because he killed yeah. this guy. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's more the addiction thing that he went to Ennett House for. Right. Right. Because the other thing is, timing-wise, he's also recovered enough that he's right. in a place to be a counselor. Right. Yeah. So he would have <laughs> had to go, like, right away after... So And maybe he did. Right. Maybe it That's really possible. threw him for a loop that... Maybe he felt extreme regret that his there's definitely more to that story. Driven, like, yeah, there is. It feels like there's something missing. There. It sounds it sounds mm -hmm. to me like something went horribly wrong for him, like beyond that experience. Well, I don't know. That's pretty bad. And and we know that he hadn't hurt people before when he right. burglarized this is their true. houses. So perhaps just the realization that he had killed this guy, maybe... But again, I don't know that he knows. It's off. possible that he doesn't know. But that could explain why he... He must have been at Ennett House almost from the time that happened, though. That's true. If, he, if as Brianna pointed out, he's been there long enough that he has a staff position now. Even right. two years seems a little quick for something like that, but I don't know. I thought maybe he was kind of hiding out there, like it would give him cover if yeah, he was if he was possible. there. Are there any tattoos that people found intriguing? There's something that I find kind of aesthetically compelling about the prison tattoos, like their minimalism and their their tininess. Um, and the fact that you can't really get rid of them. They they yeah. point out that you can't get rid of them because they're they're the ink is injected too deep. Yeah. Right. Art artisanal handcrafted tattoos. Right. And by the way, I could not find any reference to bikers as scooter puppies. Oh. That's unfortunate. That is. So now we are back with Pemulus and Hal and Axford. Back yep. to worrying and wringing our hands over Hal. Yep, yeah. back to yeah. the cry. 
One of the things that I find surprising about this conversation is that Pemulus seems to be the cautious one, and Hal right. sounds really reckless. Mm. Right. Because they're talking about this drug as being, like, the most powerful hallucinogen in the world. Right. And Pemulus is saying, like, is half a tablet a dose? And Hal is like, well, maybe two yeah, or three. Two or three, probably. Yeah. Right. Mm. It definitely does build up a lot more dread and a lot more foreshadowing yes. towards the event. I thought you guys, you people, you technology people would have something to say about the Watts line. Oh, and yeah. And I looked that up. It's a, it was a wide area telephone service that gave... Oh. It was for long distance. It talks about how he was, he was looking for information about the DMZ, and they said that they'd have to go... They'd have to physically go to a library to really do a good search, but I think Pemulus says he hacked into... Um, Lateral Alice's. I got on med. Yeah. Com, yeah, Lateral Lattice's Which So, so that's line. funny because I just assumed that that was some made-up mumbo-jumbo, so I didn't no. look up what it was. Um, yeah, it's like... Quite it's like he's all he's almost thinking of the internet, but it's also like the fact that it's important what kind of phone service the console was using makes it seem like he couldn't quite imagine a system in which all computers were connected to all other computers. Right. Well, like you, think, you need some kind of special connection to get on the med.com. Well, I think uh, the website. reason I think the reason that the Watts line was important was that it was probably a long distance connection. Right. Right, so, so you would have you to, like, dial into the... Minute, the it's like, it's like Telnet. Somehow, I, I couldn't quite follow it, but it was... Hmm. I think originally it was meant to do, like, a flat rate that you just paid monthly for the yeah. Watts line, and then, yeah. you, then you weren't charged separately for each call. So he would be able to... He would be able to dial up med.com long distance without it probably... Sh without it showing up as a separate charge... On the bill mm -hmm. that would come to ETA, so right. so no one right. would so know the, the, that he'd been in the there. The fact that the fact that you have to dial into this server directly right. sounds a lot more like like Telnet to me. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the pre-internet days, I remember on our first computer, we didn't have dial-up internet, but it did have a modem, and right. you could. I remember plugging a computer into the phone line and dialing uh -huh. up. You could dial the library's phone number right. and check their card catalog <laughs> online. Right. So it, it reminds me of that more than of the internet or like, or like what the internet could become if net neutrality ceases to exist. It's so <laughs> weird because it's so weird because in this book, there are so many things that seem like kind of sci-fi futuristic in a way. Yeah. And but that seems this so old, old and technology honestly, stuff. Honestly, that seems like it would have been old fashioned in the nineties when this was written. Watts lines were the basis for the first direct dial toll-free 1-800 numbers in the 60s. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it wasn't new technology. When was the no. book written? No, it 96, wasn't new. So wouldn't you imagine something better than that? Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, it's funny because it seems like he's he's thinking so much about the end user technology, like what's plugged into the wall in a person's home. Right. But right. he hasn't considered that. Uh, the infrastructure of like data delivery and telecommunication might have changed at all from the 90s. Right. Because everything is still plugged into modems. Kind of they, he talks about these TP consoles that have like, I don't know, five or six modems in parallel. So presumably right. you plug it into five or six different phone lines to get data transfer speeds fast enough to watch TV. 
uh, yeah, it's just really odd. Mm -hmm. I would like to take a a brief detour here to talk about uh, the CIA. Yes. So does he say that the that DMZ came out of the CIA? There's there's rumors that it was used in certain shady CIA era military experiments, which, first of all, the use of the phrase CIA era implies that they are no longer in an era in which the CIA exists. Um, That's true. Mm hmm. But also, I, I want to talk about the basis in fact for this sort of paranoia. Uh, well, so I'm this sure is, there's I, some basis in fact. I'm pretty sure that this there? is oh, yeah. a reference to CIA Project MKUltra, which ran mm-hmm. from 1953 to 1973. And it was a bio-warfare program that experimented with LSD, psilocybin, and other drugs and a variety of different technological means to do what you might broadly consider to be mind control. It talks about uh, that things got out of hand, right? Uh, well, yes. Uh, so this, again, this is pretty much all based in fact. And this, there's a story that they tell that's very much like a real story that happened. In 1955, a document gave indication of the size and range of the effort, uh, referred to the study of an assortment of mind-altering substances. It's a 17-point list. So a few of them include substances which will promote illogical thinking and impulsiveness to the point where the recipient would be discredited in public, substances which increase the efficiency of mentation and perception, so like think better pills, materials which will cause the victim to age faster or slower in maturity, which will promote the intoxicating effect of alcohol, produce the signs and symptoms of recognized diseases in a reversible way so they may be used for malingering, etc. It's this whole long list of stuff that they were looking for. And so it involved attempting to develop these drugs. It involved some spy programs to try and uh, obtain samples of drugs being developed in Europe. Um, And it involved human testing of uh, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, cocaine, AMT, and DMT on people. The incident of the soldier who is like permanently psychically scarred for being uh, administered DMZ is uh, probably a, I I don't know if it's a knowing reference, but it it mirrors the story of the death of Dr. Frank Olson in 1953. Uh, He was a an army and CIA doctor involved in the MK Ultra program who was dosed with LSD without his knowledge. Um, And his death, which Olson's family still considers to be an extrajudicial murder by the CIA. Uh, He he was dosed after he expressed misgivings about the program and asked to be removed from it, uh, was the basis for Errol Morris's documentary miniseries Wormwood, which is available on Netflix. Yeah. Um, a lot of these documents were uh, declassified in the wake of Watergate and have continually been declassified since then. I think the last round were released in 2011 or something like that. So more information is still forthcoming about the program, although uh, the CIA destroyed most of the documents in 1973. So uh, there's a lot that will probably never be known about it, uh, but it, it did definitely involve human tests. Um, And it did definitely involve, according to an NPR article that I found, it involved uh, human tests on um, detainees in secret foreign uh, prison camps. Great. Uh, Yeah. Great. So that's that's the CIA. That's our tax dollars. And now, do we also know for sure if uh, there were some tests on water supplies of rural communities or things like that? That was a different program. I remember reading about the thing that you're talking about, but I'm not sure of the details of it. So I don't think that I can speak to it. Okay. Um, 
Also, fun fact, the CIA is legally prohibited from any sort of activity inside the borders of the United States, and yet that seems to never stop them when they want to do something in the United States. Mm -hmm. Huh. Um, in the book here, it mentions subjects locked away in institutions and written off as casualties of peace. That was a very mm. interesting that term. That term was utterly chilling. Yeah. That was. Pemulus uh, mentions ergotic drugs. DMZ is an ergotic drug. Uh -huh. um, or, or as like some kind of hybrid of ergot oh, and LSD. So I ergot, I, I just, I was a little bit familiar with this and I, I looked it up a little bit to kind of brush up, but maybe you have more. Um, I, it's a, ergot is a mold that forms on bread and can have hallucinogenic uh -huh. effects. Yeah. Um, and, and it may have been the cause of a number of mass hallucinations in medieval Europe. Yes, it made me think of, of Hal's early childhood fungus I eating. This. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I ate this. Oh, that was a different word. That's the fit viavi compounds oh, or yes. the mold that yes. grows only on other molds. There's a great moment here. This is completely apropos of nothing, but uh, the slackening of a cheek lets the loop fall out and bounce off the drum-tight bed, and Pemulus gets it to rebound into his palm without even looking. Yeah, mm -hmm. you can That's really amazing. picture that. That's very you? pleasing. Yeah. Oh, I also thought, you know, people spoke disparagingly of Pemulus and his yachting hat. Yes. And yes. we learned a little bit more about probably why he wears his yachting cap, because mm -hmm. it's a good place to stash and transport his drugs that he comes up with right. in the lining of his yachting cap. ETA and just the tennis world and the sporting world in general at the time that this whole thing is happening yeah. It's so bizarre. They talk about the Siamese twin double pl doubles players yes. who are connected yeah. at the forehead or something. Karen and Sharon Vaught. Yes. Con conjoined doubles champions. Yes. Who are uh, forbidden by the USTA or Onanta from playing singles because they're conjoined, but they're the absolute best doubles team. They're the best. Right. No, they're also counted as one person in housing. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I find funny, but then feel really bad yeah. about right. finding it yeah. funny. Right. Well, it's just Although it so, probably is cheaper for them. It's just so weird. How can they play tennis like that? It's like the blind They're really tennis good. players. The blind tennis player that can compete with the sighted they're, one. They're just you very know, it's good. Like, so in the one on the one hand, there's such ill treatment of people with disabilities and yet on the other hand they're out there doing things that seem if not impossible for them to do impossible that they would ever have been trained and groomed to be able to do it you know if the society yeah. is really so down on people that are different and that have disabilities then how the heck do they end up being like really good tennis players or football players or whoever, you know, how does mm -hmm. this, how mm -hmm. does that happen? We have to, of course, talk about the end note. Oh, yes. When Hal was a toddler, he was tested for ADD. Mm -hmm. uh, specialists had experience with Mario and were open to the idea that Hal was also damaged, their word. Right. Right. Uh, so Mario is seen as damaged, diagnosed as borderline gifted or gifted. And then they say it didn't, didn't take into account his monomaniacally obsessive interest and effort. 
Yes. As if Hal was trying, as if his very life depended on it to please some person. Even though no one had ever even hinted that his life depended on seeming gifted or precocious or even exceptionally pleasing. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, again, it just is, it, it makes me feel sad for Hal. I know. And yet there's also this puzzle of him and moms and their relationship. Yeah. Because here again, it talks about, you know, he's this brilliant kid and... He talked about, like, the Battle of the Books. Remember the Battle of the Books in grade school? Did you Mm -hmm. do those? Where, of course, the fact that he could remember everything he read made him, like, unbeatable, right? You couldn't beat him in Battle of the Books. It was, like, almost almost like an LSD afterglow. Yeah, which again reminds me of that observation that pretty much anything can become an addiction. Right, exactly. But then it also, then it says that, uh, mom's made it clear that his value was not contingent on winning first or second prize ever. Yeah. Like she's probably tickled that he shares her linguistic abilities. Of course she, it's something that they share, but it seems that she doesn't push him. Yeah. Even though I mean, so his father sees him as potentially a great tennis player and pushes and pushes and pushes. Moms sees his linguistic genius, but yet, I mean, that statement kind of sounds like he doesn't have to prove anything about his abilities in that mm-hmm. area to her. Mm-hmm. She's such a mysterious person. Mm-hmm. That almost makes me like her, though. Yeah, I feel a certain kinship with her in a way, (laughs) you know, all kids have their special talents, right? And their special gifts. And as the parent trying really hard to appreciate those gifts and celebrate the gifts with your kids, I guess without making the gift become a burden in a way like you, you are really good at this. And I think it's amazing, and I like to see what you're doing and how, like, what your obsession, your current obsessions are, but that you don't, it's not why I love you, you know? It's like, yeah. you don't have to, you don't have to prove yourself. Or perform. And, or love. perform. I mean, so it's not that you don't celebrate with your kids, but that sort of wanting to take the pressure, the performance pressure off. Like, I'm so glad you love doing this. And I, I enjoy seeing what you're doing. You're really good. You seem really good at it to me. And that that's like good enough. You don't have to win prizes or anything for me to appreciate who you are. Where I'm not sure I got that. I get that uh, feeling from the fathers portrayed in this book so far. Yeah. I don't um, know what any of that means. Oh, in the also in this. In family, but. In this section, we learn where Pemulus got the DMZ. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He bought it from some Canadians at a, who, a who storefront called uh, Antitois Entertainment. And he said they didn't really know what they had, right? He, yeah. They, they had well, like it a sounds, fortune. It's like it should have been worth, a, it should have I, cost a fortune. I got to say, but, it sounds like Pemulus really hates Canadians. Hmm. Since this lumberjackish Antoine Nuckwad tended to yeah. look from side to side, yeah. uh, he imagines himself as being like William Penn, trading a few trinkets to Babe in the Woods natives for New Jersey. Oh, gross. Mm-hmm. I think part of his looking down his nose at them, though, is just it's so hard for 
him to believe that they could be so stupid as to not understand that they could sell this stuff for unlimited. Like they haven't done the work. They haven't done their, yeah. they haven't done the research. <laughs> They're out there just selling this stuff and they, they have no idea what it is. And Pemulus mm-hmm. obviously uh, researches stuff really extensively. So I, I mean, perhaps, well, I mean, he's talking uh, about, well, yes, that they no, need I, to look up more and they need to, I do see what you're saying, but I also think that if such a thing as anti-Canadian racism yeah. existed <laughs> yeah. in our world, like yeah, this, this like whole that. paragraph would be hate yeah. speech. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although they were kind of doofuses. If this stuff is like, if there's hardly any of this left over from the seventies and it's this Super yeah, it seems power. how could they ill-advised. not know? Unless how could they not know I mean, that it's unless they know something that he doesn't, mm. like maybe it's no good anymore or maybe it's counterfeit. That's that's possible. I mean, who knows what they know about it? Oh, there's also another mention here about the Empire Waste Disposal Transnational Catapult. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. The thud and sprong <laughs> off way below to their left, and then the high keen sound of a waste displacement projectile the clouds are too low to let them see the flight of. Though That's a another... weirdly yellow sheep-shaped cloud is visible somewhere up past Acton. It's another example of like this really klutzy technology. Mm-hmm. What the it's it's funny to imagine it, right? These cat these Things so they're they're like they're just taking the, they're they're taking their garbage and just catapulting it into Quebec. Is that what we're to believe here? That's what I it think. sounds like. I think so. Yeah. Or whatever it's called, yeah. the concavity. Into yeah. The concavity. Mm-hmm. It's like the giant landfill. Yeah. Is it a flying thing? Was it flying and and it's it's a projectile. But was it came? Did it come from the ground or did it come? I think. My reading of this is that they have a giant catapult on the ground somewhere that launches, <laughs> like, capsules full of trash extremely long distances. And it is extremely long distance. If they can hear it, if, they, if it's noticeable there in, around yeah. Boston, that's yeah. not right up against the edge of the Great No, Concavity, no, it's got to go, it? like, down, hundreds go. of miles, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. The dread is building. It's like... Yeah. Pemulus decides to set a date. November 20th is when they're going to try it. Right. They have to get to the tournament, right? The Arizona tournament. Pemulus has to qualify. The others are... It's it's, it's pretty much a lock on, but... But it's apparently going to happen there. Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? So is that when... I believe that's right, yeah. And that's when when we started how the book opened. It was the no. That's this. We're still in YDAU, and that's well, the, the year of glad. Start? Year of glad is the first oh. heading. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So it's it's got to be like um, a year after. Yeah, oh. but it did make reference to the Whataburger. Tournament. Yeah, the Whataburger. The Whataburger. Right. Yeah. So right. it's like yeah. the same time of year, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It it's going to be the ne- next year's tournament then. Mm-hmm. But is that they're planning to try the DMZ when they're away from? Yeah, Enfield, right? In like in like two weeks from right. from when this takes place. So why were they doing that? Because they want to they want to test it. They want to see yeah, but why what it does. Not just do it in the well. There's this whole it. thought process that Pemulus goes through about like they need they need at least thirty six hours of like uninterrupted time, which seems like a pretty big ask for ETA students. Oh, like there's probably right. not a yeah. lot of times when that would be a possibility. So it's like during their travel time? 
to I Arizona? Think so. Or yeah. Maybe. Because if they were at if they were at uh, Enfield, they'd be in class or they'd be practicing. Right. I just keep wanting to say, "Don't try it." Mm-hmm. <laughs> he wouldn't listen to me, though. No. Nope. I realize the sadness. The sadness about Hal. I mean, why is he so? He is so willing. He's. To yeah, take I mean, he seems really unpowered. He, he like drug. just is not not that attached to the life that he's living. I think he says Pemulus says this Shotun soldier like left the planet. Well, so long as he waves every so often, Hal says. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the previous references to, you know, wanting to wrap your mind up and leave it in the alley. That kind of like in Kate Gompert, I just don't want to be able to think, yeah. you know, that mm-hmm. that he's willing so Pemulus is talking about how people have potentially lost their minds taking this drug, and it's like Hal is like all in on that. Like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. that'd be mm-hmm. good if I don't have to think. Poor Hal. Should we move on to this last little section here about Joelle Van Dyne? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. So she's at a party. This is a new character, someone we haven't met before. This was also very sad. It is. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. the whole thing is it basically sounds like, we don't know the specifics yet, but it sounds like she's planning to commit suicide. Right. She right. Like very, very soon, like within a couple hours. OD. Right. Yeah. yeah. She has intriguing connections to James Incandenza. Who yeah. She so there's, to a, there's a lot of stuff here. And, and Oren, too. She's thinking about people from her life, and she mentions Uncle Bud and. Oren and Jim and YYY. Three letters, YYY. Oh, the WYYY? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was yeah. wondering what that was. Okay. Oh, yeah. I didn't yeah, think no, about yeah. it until you said YYY. <laughs> it also, hmm. So it also sounds like she maybe listens to Madame Psychosis. She talks about the collar. Where was that? She Listen thinks about Madame Psychosis? Well, is she... she, she or is she mm. Madame Psychosis? Ooh. She's familiar with Madame Psychosis' she, she show, I think. She references the moon, the Something the about collar, that collar the and collar, the, moon, said, the moon, saying the moon never looked away. Looked away. Yeah. Right. I don't know who Uncle Bud is. Yeah. Yeah, who would Uncle Bud be? But yeah, she's at this party that she hates, uh, and she's talking about how kind of forced and fake it seems. Uh, it's being thrown by Molly Notkin, who... I was puzzling over whether, are they actually identical twins, or is that just a figure of speech when she says that they're sororal twins? Um, I think it's a figure of speech. That's how I read it. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't quite decide, but I think I'm pr- I probably am with you there. She's like a film studies scholar. Um, film and, and uh, film cartridge theory. Got, just got her yes. PhD, Molly Notkin. And yeah. Joelle She's got Van these... Dyne also was in the, the PhD film and film cartridge theory program, but then she switched to broadcast sound. Yeah. So that's maybe a pretty strong indicator that this could be Madame Psychosis. Madame Psychosis. That and the mm-hmm. fact that she clearly, she refers to these incandenzas in really familiar terms. Yeah. And we know yeah. that Mario... Mario knows or recognizes her voice. Reco- some kind of recognition from and her And she's voice. credited in a number of she's James O's his, films. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And she wears a veil. Right. Yeah. Which yes. is something that Madame Psychosis also does. I do want to point out one thing that I find hilarious about this setting is that she's sitting in one oh, of chairs. a set of chairs <laughs> that are fiberglass molded in the shapes of famous directors. That was really funny. Mm-hmm. So, I did like some of them people up. shaped. I can't even quite imagine what they would look like. Like, how can you make a? I pictured them as seated people that and are like concave. Would, well, their lap would be okay. the seat of the chair, and okay. when you sit, it's like you're sitting in their laps. That sounds mm-hmm. really uncomfortable. Yeah. See, yeah. I kind of envision them as like beanbag chairs in the shape of the director's head. Oh. Okay. I could. <laughs> yeah, that sounds more too. comfy. Interesting directors, too. I did look them up. So we've got, uh, we've got uh, George Cukor. Who did uh, My Fair Lady and Philadelphia Story and Little yeah. Women and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, F.W. Murnau, the uh, the Nos German Feratu. expressionist filmmaker. Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. And, and Georges Méliès, uh, who I never know if I'm pronouncing that right. Do you pronounce the S at the end of his name? Méliès? I, I always pronounce it Méliès. Melier, yeah, um, but the e, the, it's an accent grave on the end of his name, not an accent aigu. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Anyway, French is uh, so funny. Sorry. The the uh, <laughs> silent era French filmmaker and like visual effects visionary who made From the Earth to the Moon and other such things. Yeah, yeah, one of the very earliest filmmakers and. Yeah, there's a great story that I know about the discovery of special effects. He built a camera or bought a camera fairly early on in the invention of cinematography. uh, And he would just go out and shoot kind of documentary subjects, as was the fashion in France at the time. Uh, He was shooting this footage of a French street and his camera jammed. And so he had to stop turning the handle and he he kind of fiddled with it for a second and then started turning the handle again. And. When he took it back and developed the film and watched it, he discovered that a horse cart that had stopped in the street had moved in the intervening time between when he stopped and started his camera. And so it looked like it had disappeared. Uh, and that was, that was his big aha moment that you could use the starting and stopping of cameras or you could just use cameras in general for these illusions and like magic tricks, kind of. I just think it's hilarious that this person has these chairs. Yes. You guys going to get some for your apartment? Ugh. <laughs> I don't plan on it. If you could have chairs that were uh, molded to be to look like people, then who who would you have your chairs molded to be like? Ah, uh, there's a difficult question. Yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I really don't want that. But if I had to, it, who's making you? Your mother or your mother-in-law calling with so much excitement in her voice, like she has had the best idea ever. And she says, you know what, you guys, you've both, you're both recent graduates. I want to celebrate your graduation by getting you something really special that I know you will love so much. And all I need to know <laughs> is which four people would you choose to have molded into chairs for your apartment? Oh, that's easy because we would just, we would say anyone and then we would just uh, put them in the basement and only put them out when you came to visit. And now we're going with the fact that these are like full bodied people kind of 60s 
sitting, not the. I, I mean, I think that's the most that's the most hideous option. So I think that's right, the one yeah. we should go with. <laughs> okay. So that, so that if no one is sitting in them, they actually look like they themselves are just there sitting in your apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. I would go with David Lynch, David Cronenberg, uh, just because having both of them sitting in my apartment would be interesting. That would be very um, unsettling. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Alfred Hitchcock, I feel, would make a very comfortable chair. Yes. Yeah, He's and then finally, cushy, right? although I don't actually know what he looks like, but uh, the Japanese cartoonist Junji Ito, I, I feel like he would make a good chair. Thank you, Vinny. Thank You're you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for participating in the premise that Brianna and I flatly rejected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I have to hand off my phone. Hang on, okay. I'll be right back. Hello there. I am, I am in the middle of my, I am in the middle of my podcast, so I'm going to hand My mother shouts when she's on the phone. Oh. Does she? <laughs> yes, she does. Okay, sorry. Okay. London so, calling. Ah, the clash. Um, <laughs> so there's another idea that comes up in the narration of the Joelle Van Dyne section. Uh, she talks about... The, the cage's exit is actually the bars of the cage. The entrance says exit. There isn't an exit. Um, mm -hmm. The ultimate mm -hmm. annular fusion, that of exhibit and its cage. Right. Um, right. I was thinking about this in reference to like the fusing of beginning to end. Um, almost as like an Ouroboros, like that, that mm. image of the, the snake swallowing its own tail. Yeah. And I find this somewhat helpful because I still don't really understand what annular fusion means in any sense. Um, right. Nope. But the idea of like taking a thing and making it into a ring with no beginning or end at least gives me some sort of like abstract concept of what it is or what it's doing. Mm hmm. This is sort of a side note, but Brianna and I have both recently read The uh, Little Fires Everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Book. Yeah. And that, and I've been sitting here racking my brain about where did I, where did that th idea of the cage, uh, like, are you in the cage oh, or yeah. are you the cage? That was from Little Fires Everywhere too. So, do we think that Joelle is Madame Psychosis? This is a question for you. Yeah, you and you Andrew and, Vinny and I know the need answer. To, oh. Need to talk about that because we've oh, read yeah. the book. Um, I think it's an interesting theory, but I'm not convinced. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical because when I first read Madame Psychosis's broadcast, and I was so convinced that perhaps she w it was Avril, I was like, I, mean, I really thought maybe that was true. But then she's Avril's such, there at the house for the for family dinner. So Madame so Psychosis right. is such a mysterious personality that I feel like it invites immediate speculation about who she really is. Mm-hmm. Right. And it really invites you to start forming these theories with like every new character that you meet that could remotely fit that description. <laughs> right. right. And actually, yeah. Joelle almost sounds like Avril. This whole veil thing that she wears. Mm -hmm. In that regard, she's kind of like Avril who doesn't want to go out. 
right? She yeah. uses the tunnels yeah. she and needs it's to like, like hiding yourself somehow when you're out in the world. There's also a free associative question that just occurred to me. Is it just something that's like a motif that's popping up or is there a connection between the reference to Francis Bacon's veiled popes and the veil oh, that, right. oh. that mm. uh, Joelle wears? It's hard for me to believe that any of it is coincidental. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like David Foster Wallace makes connections that even if I can't see them, they're connections. But I feel like sometimes it's like <laughs> baiting us as readers to try and figure out what the connections mean. Right. Like sometimes the connections don't mean anything except that there are these weird echoes. Right. Yeah. Well, right. The it's like thing... light motif. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, for the listeners, is an image that snowballs in meaning as you read or view the piece of media. The other thing that seems inescapable for me as I'm reading this, and so we have the themes of substance abuse and addiction. Achievement. Yeah, achievement mm-hmm. and and the ties to the like the dysfunctional family. Then there's the suicide yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also depression is running through and it's hard to read the book now knowing that the author killed himself. There's something that about is, it yeah, that, that makes it very like not only are you witnessing the characters in the book struggling with either reasons to stay alive or ways to end having to think about your miserable existence. And it's impossible not to think about him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like you're witnessing his own personal demons, mm-hmm. which is also upsetting to me as I'm reading it. I almost wish that I didn't know that he had killed himself. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I think that it does add a layer of meaning, but, you know, we've talked before about how it's. Oftentimes it's really seductively easy to start thinking about a book as as like a biographical reflection of the author. And maybe that's not always the most interesting way to do it. But it's so difficult to look past that in some of these sections. It is. Um, I I wish that I had that opportunity. I know. I wish that I read it when when the book first came out. Yeah. Not that I could have gotten through it. (laughs) (laughs) When did it come out? I keep asking you. 96. 96. Yeah. So I would have been nine years old. I could have read it it with you. (laughs) (laughs) We could have read it aloud. We read lots of books aloud (laughs) that time period. I should have read you Infinite Jest. Bedtime. Here's another hundred pages of Infinite Jest. (laughs) Oh, Mommy, please read another chapter. Just one more chapter. You would fall asleep immediately. (laughs) more tomorrow. So that brings us to the end of our reading. Mom, you already mentioned, and I've noticed, and, and I did also read ahead, the uh, the gift that David Foster Wallace gives us at the beginning Finally. of our next reading, this, this chronology of different subsidized years, which in, in one sense seems like an enormous relief, and in another sense fills me with dread, because it seems like a signal that it's going to be incumbent on me to try and keep track of this for all the stuff going forward. No. Well, look on the bright side. You have this wonderful resource that's being made yeah. by your wife yeah. in oh, real so, time. Some, some lovely person put together a spreadsheet to help us understand yes, the goodness. chronology. <laughs> it's, it's very confusing. Have we had... So, see, I am looking ahead. I'm looking at the beginning of the next chapter, and I was wondering 
I mean, all the years I recognize as at least being mentioned, except the year of the Whisper Quiet Maytag Dishmaster. I don't remember us hearing anything There's about that There's one year. reference to it that I remember from uh, Strzok writing the paper about the oh. wheelchair assassins. Oh, the thing okay. that he's plagiarizing yeah. from was published in the year of the Whisper Quiet Maytag oh, Dishmaster. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. So there's nine years here of the subsidized time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you've got these kids, it's YDAU, and this means that sub the subsidized time must have started like right around the time that they came to ETA. I guess, yeah, like they would be it's old enough to remember month. a time before subsidized time. Right. Yeah. I'm so curious about what what's the political situation that right. brought this about? And when did all the stuff with Canada happen? Right. Was that during yeah. the subsidized years or was that at, we, did that all happen after? We don't, I, mean, I mean, is this all part of the, the construction of Onan as an entity, which presumably right. happened around, I mean, those few years ago? I don't know. I hope that we get to learn more. Yeah. And there's a lot of pages ahead, so we probably there will. Are, we probably will. <laughs> we probably will learn some more. Yeah. Although I did want to note that for the first time, when I like chunk the book, mm -hmm. I think oh, we're making progress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The chunk that we've read is maybe not quite a fourth of the way. But, but we're getting right. there. We're getting yeah. there. Uh, does anyone have anything to announce or to plug? Oh, I wish I did. As always, um, you can check me out on Instagram at CardboardVV, and you can find my paintings there. I hope to do something noteworthy this week. I have no idea what it will be. Ooh. Well, keep <laughs> so us surprised. Oh, I got more. I know what I'll be doing this week. I want to put a plug in for all the CSAs out there that are growing yummy mm. food right now and raising roots. Is my very own farm that I am getting <laughs> massive amounts of leafy vegetables from right now. Ooh. They need to be used up within seven days because there will be another enormous bag of leafy vegetables. Oh, goodness but, gracious. But mm. Thanks to the farmers, right? I would like to plug, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to a, uh, a film by one of the UWM professors that feels very appropriate right now. It's called No Justice, No Peace, Young, Black, Immediate by Portia Cobb. Uh, oh. It was uh, interviewing people of color in relation to the Rodney King beating. Yeah. Uh, it features an appearance from Boots Riley, who went on to direct Sorry to Bother You. Oh. Uh, Brianna, do you want to plug your website? Oh. I have a website. It's briannacratz.com. And uh, check the show notes for a link to Brianna's super helpful Infinite Jest timeline. Full of spoilers. Yeah, don't read ahead if you're if <laughs> if you're starting from the beginning. We were just talking about this yesterday also that we think that you can get something out of this podcast even if you haven't read Infinite Jest and don't plan to read Infinite Jest. Um, we're just delightful to listen to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be talking about pages 223 to 242. Our music is by David Nichols. You can listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. And remember, you can't unring a bell. Goodbye. Should we talk about a reading goal for next week? It looks like... 
It's either 242 or 258. I'm good with either. I'm unemployed. Yeah. Same. I'm good with either. I'm retired. I... That's just a fancy way of saying you're unemployed. <laughs> yeah. I'm unemployed. Yeah.